0: We're going to just get this morning a bit of a running start. Genesis chapter 13, beginning with verse 5. We're going to read several verses, talk just a little bit about, not spend a lot of time in recap, but just kind of setting the stage for what we'll talk about this morning. We read that Lot also, who went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents, and the land was not able to support them, that they might dwell together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell. There was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's flocks and the herdsmen of Lot's flocks. We're also told here that the Canaanites and the Perizzites dwelt in the land. So Abram said to Lot, please let there be no strife between you and me, between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you take the left, then I will go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. And Lot lifted his eyes and saw the plain of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere, And then Moses kind of adds this amendment before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. It was like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as you go towards Zor. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan, and he journeyed east. And they separated from each other. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan. Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain. We're told that he pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful Uh, against the Lord. Continuing, and we addressed uh, those verses last Sunday. Uh, On a side note, um, if you're listening to anyone teach through this passage, they'll take a moment to discuss what's happening here with Lot. Uh, Him looking towards the plain of the Jordan. Him seeing that it was like the garden of God and everyone's still looking for a garden. Seeing that it was like Egypt where they had just Uh, traveled from, seeing Sodom. Though it was wicked, he chooses to live in this area. He pinches his tent towards Sodom. We'll see this morning that, that he's actually now in Sodom. There's lots to unpack there. We're kind of making the decision to push that off until we actually get to the events of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then we're going to look at Lot a little bit more extensively. So we're kind of skipping through a little bit of stuff, just so we're not redundant later on. Diving back into the text, verse 14, the Lord said to Abram, and this occurred after Lot had separated from him. God said, lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see, I give to you and to your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants could also be numbered, which of course is impossible. Arise, walk, in the land, through its length and its width, for I give it to you. And Abram moved his tent and went and dwelt by the terabith trees of Merimeh, which are in Hebron, and built an altar there to the Lord. I like how this section of Scripture opens. Lot leaves. They've separated, which was not a good thing. It was a tragic development. brothers. Because of their disobedience, to not trust in the promises of God, going down to Egypt, which was a total epic disaster. Then given all this stuff by Pharaoh, sent back into the land. They have all of this stuff. And as a result, the land couldn't support them. They should have gotten rid of the stuff. What was more important? Being brothers? Living together? Embarking on this journey? Continuing in the journey with one another? Or all of this stuff that they had gotten through disobedience? You might say that what they had gotten in Egypt was a blessing because they got all of this stuff. They didn't deserve it. And yet we see it was all a curse. It caused a separation between brothers. Abram will have in Egypt occurred a woman named Hagar, a servant girl, who he would ultimately make a, a, a totally terrible decision with later on. Not good. Just not good. The whole situation is terrible. And yet, in spite of all that, we're, we're told, and the Lord said to Abram, keep in mind that this act of God stepping into the life of Abram, in this instance, you can't say that it was really predicated upon anything Abram had done, right? Quite the contrary. Abram, at this juncture, he had not built an altar. He had not, was not calling on the name of the Lord. Abram had just allowed the temporal things of this world, the things he had procured in Egypt, to separate he and Lot. And yet the Lord, by his grace, still speaks. Isn't it true that even when we make terrible decisions, God still speaks to us? That he doesn't wipe his hands, wash his hands, say, I'm through with you. Ah, You were the experiment gone wrong. I'm going to find somebody else who will listen. No, he still speaks, he still works. Notice how God begins. He says to Abram, Lift up your eyes now. In the original Hebrew, this word now, it's, it's really unique, as a matter of fact. Hebrew scholars aren't even really sure how best to translate this particular word, especially in the context that is God saying it, that it's God using the word, the context of the passage the best that Hebrew scholars have come up with is that this word now should be translated as please now. You see, the word, it implies that in this instance, God is not just giving Abram the directive to lift up his eyes. He's pleading with him to lift up his eyes. And why would God be pleading with Abram to do this? Let's just kind of recap where Abram's at. Think about it. God appeared and called Abram while he was in Ur of the Chaldeans, promising to lead him to a land of promise, right? A promised land. What does Abram do? He's a pagan idolater. The God of glory appears to him, gives him this awesome promise, says go. Abraham does what? He leaves, but he travels only as far as Haran before settling there for decades, falling short of ever reaching the land God was leading him to. Then, Abraham, this mighty man of faith, his father dies in Haran. Once again, God calls him, reiterates all of the promises that he had originally made in Ur. What does Abram do? He does. He packs up. He leaves Haran. He gets to the land of promise. Finally, only to then immediately leave the land of promise for Egypt when the going got tough, when a severe famine arose in the land. Now that Abram has finally returned to the land that God had promised him. And why had he returned? Because he had been convicted by the Holy Spirit, that he had recognized the error of his ways. No, we saw last Sunday, he returned to the land for one reason. Pharaoh kicked him out of Egypt forcibly removed him from Egypt. Said, you can't stay here. So Abram decides that I'll go back to the land God had called me to. He gets back to the land, and now what is he doing? Well, in the verses we read, he's giving away the land that God had given to him, which he had no right to do. Do you kind of catch this trend with Abram? From the beginning up to this point, everything Abram has done, every decision he's made, has made God's work in his life a little bit more difficult. Abram's not going with the flow. Aside from the fact that it is amazing that in context to all that, that God would again speak to Abram after everything that had transpired in Egypt. I find that it's this tone in God's voice. Speaking to him after Lot had separated from him that is so powerfully revealing. At this point in Abram's life, God comes, he appears, he speaks, and he pleads with Abram to listen to him. Why? Because God was frustrated? Like a parent with his kid? No. I don't don't find that this pleading was based out of frustration, but rather God here is pleading for a different reason. He knows all of the blessings that Abram has presently failed to realize because he hasn't consistently walked with him. He's like, I've got so much planned for you, in store for you. Why do you keep resisting it? Please, please. You know, because we're looking at these stories in the book of Genesis through the lens of grace... We're talking about it, right? The genesis of grace. I want to take just a minute with this idea in mind and paint a larger picture. Make a larger point. Yes, as with Abram, you and I are saved by grace. And grace alone, it is God's favor and place of your merit. There is nothing you did to deserve God's salvation. And yes, as with Abram, you are also sanctified by God's grace, God's favor, in spite of your inabilities. Yet, Abram's life illustrates to us the reality that the lasting effects of either God's grace for salvation or sanctification, they're never really made fully possible. The effects of his amazing grace if you don't appropriately respond to his word. Think think about it like this. Think about it like this. While it is undoubtedly true that God's grace initiates first contact, that you've played no role in the process, that God's grace sent Jesus to die and now invites you, the sinner, to the cross, it's still true that the full effects of this grace manifesting in your life, can and will never be fully realized, and yes, unless you respond to his call and accept his son Jesus' sacrifice. Jesus died for your sins, but that's only good if you accept it, right? Makes sense. Additionally, while it is then God's grace that fills you with his spirit, providing you now a relationship with Jesus, neither of which you earned nor can maintain. A relationship, mind you, that naturally yields a transformation of your passions. A transformation of your desires. A transformation of your behaviors. Keep in mind, though, that the full effects of this grace can and will never be realized if you aren't walking with God according to his word, which enables God's spirit to do a supernatural work in and through your life. God wants to transform you. He wants to save you. He wants to transform you. His grace is the only mechanism that can do either. But neither effects are fully seen if you don't allow it. You see, the power of grace, oh, and it is so powerful. It's the only thing that can change us. It's the only thing that can save us. But the power of grace is only realized and a life that allows it to grace can save you if you accept it it will transform you if you permit it but grace still in both of these dynamics requires the most simplistic act of your free will to simply say yes yes to that work and Haran, god's grace was sure but because abram quit walking the manifestation of grace's blessing was delayed He wasn't in the land God had promised him. Then in Egypt, God's grace still remained. But because of Abram's failure to trust God in the face of a famine, the manifestation of that grace, it was limited. It was hampered. The pleading of God at this point in Abram's life, it's striking to me. Because grace had so much more in store for Abram. So much he was still failing to experience. Do you know that's true for you as well? That God might be saying to you this morning, friend, I have so much for you that you don't even know. Will you let me? Will you walk with me? You see, I don't agree with the notion that you could ever abuse God's grace. I don't buy it. If you're accused of such a thing, it's only evidence that you or the person making the accusation never really fully understands what grace is to begin with. But, and this is the thing that I think is important this morning, I do believe that you can limit the effects of God's grace. While you don't earn God's favor, nor do you maintain it, you can fail to see God's full favor manifest in your life if you make a choice not to choose to walk with him. Notice how God continues. He says to Abram, lift your eyes and look from the place where you are. Now keep in mind, God does not exhort Abram here to look where he's presently standing. He doesn't say look where you are. As a matter of fact, what does he say? He says to Abram to look from the place you are. Well, God is going to reiterate a profound (laughs) promise to Abram. Understand, it was important Abram first have the right perspective. And this is what God is trying to get Abram to see. Though it's so easy to grow overcome, weighed down, burdened by our present situations, even your current failings, more often than not, and this is important, the key to making sense of whatever's in front of you is often to look back from the place where God has brought you and ahead to the place that he's leading. It's to remember, and then to look forward. Look from that place. And as Abram does, God reminds him of what? Look at our text. He says, All the land which you see, I will give to you and your descendants forever. Now, keep this in context of what's just happened. Right. It's why we read these verses. It's almost as, God, as though God is coming to Abram at this point and saying, "In spite of what you just gave lot, which you had no right to give away, and in addition to just that bumbling failure you incurred while in Egypt, I'm still going to give you every part of this land. You might have given some of it to lot, but guess what? It's still yours. It's still yours. Wow. Like like what grace? Abram tarnished his witness in Egypt. He gave away part of his inheritance to Lot. And yet God's promises still remain sure and full. That should be encouragement to you. It's encouragement to me. Abram's actions, they may have been hindering God's work. But this is what's important. They hadn't eliminated the work itself. Can I say that again? It's important you hear that. Abram's actions at this point may have been hindering God's work, but they hadn't eliminated the work itself. If you bear with me, I'm convinced that in asking Abram, notice what else happens. He says, look from this place, but beyond that, look northward, southward, eastward, and westward. And in doing so, I think God is trying to get a lesson, communicate a point Set his perspective on more than just geography. Think about it. In Abram standing here in Canaan looking northward, what would he have seen? <laughs> you might be able to guess it. He would have seen God's grace. He would have seen northward the city of Haran, which represented these years that he had wasted. Not only had had Abram squandered so many years because he had stopped walking with God, but I'm sure as he looked northward, he remembered God's grace and God's patience. That when he was ready to move, God was still ready to lead. Even though Haran might have represented a costly detour, as Abram looked northward, he would have remembered that God's call and his promises were sure. There's no doubt as he looked northward that he saw those early footsteps, right? Coming from Haran down into the land. The early days of that exciting journey. Those first baby steps. But then he also looked southward, right? And what would he have seen? (laughs) God's grace. He would have seen his footprints coming back from where? From Egypt. A reminder that nothing good ever results when we fail to trust God. Abram, I'm sure, would have thought in this moment that a a severe famine and the land of promise was far superior to the green pastures of this world. I can imagine Abram considered that all of that stuff he had accumulated there in Egypt, stuff they had lugged through the desert, it hadn't been worth it. It led to a separation between him and a brother. Disobedience. Is never a good thing. And looking eastward, what would Abram have seen? God's grace. He would have seen his hometown of Ur. He would have remembered his life before God's initial appearing, before God's initial call his life in idolatry, how the world had ripped him off. Additionally, he would have seen the plain of Jordan. He would have once again considered where now Lot was living. While he may have taken the easy road, had given away the land, Abram would have thought that that land still existed for his descendants forever. And then in looking westward, what would Abram have seen? Once again, God's grace. He would have seen uncharted territory. Abram's yet to go westward. He would have seen an entire expanse that his journey with God had yet to lead him into. How exciting. That in spite of his failures, God's plan for his life remained solid. There were new things, new battles, new journeys, new endeavors on the horizon. This morning, wherever it is that you've come from, or whatever situation or circumstance you might be facing, this is what God is saying to you right from the beginning. Lift up your eyes from the place where you are. Look, remember, if you've failed to enjoy his grace because of detours and seasons of, of an inability to trust or to walk, lapses in judgment, that God is, he's not coming down to condemn, to rebuke, to pull out his divine paddle, provide a spanking. He doesn't do that with Abram, does he? What does he just say? He says, hey, lift up your eyes. May I ask when you do that, what do you see? Do you see the life you once lived? A life that God saved you from, called you out of? Your Haran or your Ur. Can I ask this morning, after a time walking with God, do you regret it? Do you miss it? Do you long for it? Do you see the journey that God has led you on up into this point, a journey that's included, no doubt, mountains that you've had to summit, valleys you've had to endure? After a time walking with God by his grace, can I ask, has that journey been worth it? Has at any point in the the travels, God's grace not proved sufficient? God's promises, have they ever failed you? See, for the moment where you're at, it's important to remember where he's brought you. Because if he's been able to get you through that, he's able to get you through whatever you're facing or whatever sits on your horizon. If you look ahead, what do you see? Maybe it's storm clouds, maybe it's blue skies. If you're like Abram and you lift up your eyes, my guess is that you still see what you saw when you look back, and when you looked around, God's amazing grace. The point of Abram gaining such a perspective here is that God was reminding him in much the same way that he reminds you and I that this journey we're on with him, (laughs) it began in grace, it's maintained through grace, And the only way we'll ever be able to reach our destination is if God's grace remains sufficient. Abram once again needed to make a decision, didn't he? Did he want to receive the blessings of God's grace? This is why the exhortation after he looks around is very simple it's two words arise and what? Walk. It's that simple. Notice how the chapter closes. It closes with Abram doing just that. We're told, Abram moved his tent, went and dwelt by the terabith trees of Merame, which are in Hebron, and built an altar there to the Lord. I-, I love the meaning of these names in this verse because they paint for us an interesting picture. I think a relevant picture. The word Merimee, it-, it means strength, vigor. The word Hebron It means association or communion. The idea of merime, strength, being found in Hebron, communion, (laughs) that's quite profound. Because of the word of the Lord and God's grace once again being demonstrated towards Abram, because of his renewed communion and connection with God, because Abram said yes to the promises of God and chose now to arise and to walk again in his grace. Where is now Abram? He is in communion with God, which puts him in a place of strength. Merimeh was in Hebron. I hope you know this morning that it is only the communion we experience with God that yields in our lives the strength necessary and vigor to walk with God. <laughs> this would be important for Abram because whether he realized it or not, there was a battle percolating, swirling around him he was unaware of. He would need strength for the battle, but he would only find that strength in communion with God. You now it's interesting to point out Abram's strength here. It was not developed because of something he did but rather was found in a place that he moved his tent into. Strength. Strength was a byproduct of the place he dwelt and not the result of an activity he engaged in. The same is true for you and us. Now, how we grow spiritually, how we gain spiritual strength so we can endure the trials of life, fulfill the call of God, or simply walk with him, That strength, how we get that strength and get more of that strength, it's a a topic long discussed by Christians. And most of the time, you will find that the remedy to feeling weak is presented with the exhortation to do some things. If you're feeling weak, man, friend, you need to read your Bible more. You need to pray more diligently. must be a lapse in your quiet time, your devotion. And while I don't disagree that these things aren't important, We should never, ever forget that reading your Bible, having a devotional, your prayer life, all of these things, they're a means to an end. They're not the end of the means. Spiritual strength is something only found one way, in communion with God. Meaning, the goal of prayer, the goal of a Bible study, it's not to develop your strength. Man, I'm just feeling real weak. I need to plug into that battery, you know, juice up. That's not true. The goal of praying, the goal of Bible study, it's not to develop your strength. It's instead to grow in my dependency on his strength. It's a difference. You see, the more I grow in my knowledge of God, the more I grow in my communion with Jesus, this relationship, the more inclined I am to depend and to rely on his strength when the going gets tough. The Bible never says you need more strength. The Bible says you need more of his. You need to rely on his. In 2 Corinthians 3 verse 5, Paul wrote, Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything, as being from ourselves. You know what the word anything means? Anything. That's what it means in the Greek. Just, I'm an expert. Not at all, by the way. Blueletterbible.com, check it out. Makes studying so much easier. But he says, don't think of anything that you're sufficient at all. Then he says this, our sufficiency, I can see him just kind of like, our sufficiency is from God. Then in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, just a couple chapters later, Paul, in recounting his own story, says that Jesus said this to him, My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. The spiritual life is not you being strong. It's you relying in his strength. You know, it's an amazing fact. And I had this thought this week. I kind of had to do a bit of a word study just to see uh, if this was true or not. But do you know that Jesus never once told his disciples at any point to obey him? He never told them to obey him or to be obedient. Just do a study of those two words, obedient, obedience or or, or obey. Instead, this is what Jesus' exhortation was. It was never obey me or be obedient to God. No, Jesus said this, abide. It was a different word. In John 15, verses 4 and 5, Jesus told his disciples, this was his exhortation, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit for without me. Notice he says, you can do nothing. You have no power to do anything. There is a huge difference, friend, between obedience and abiding. Between obeying God and abiding in a relationship with God. Obedience. Obedience is my attempt to do the right thing so I can enjoy a relationship with Jesus. While abiding is enjoying a relationship with Jesus that manifests in me doing the right things. Guys, the key to seeing all that God's grace has for you and your life, it's this simple. Let me, let me repeat the question. If you wanna see, do you wanna see all that God's grace has for you? If you do, this is, this is all that's required. Walk with Jesus. Commune with Jesus. As Abram Pitch your tent in Hebron, communion, and find strength. Once again, the chapter closes with Abram building an altar there to the Lord. Unlike the altar we saw in Bethel, the altar where then Abram called upon the name of the Lord only for God to remain silent twice, this altar was built as a response to God's word and the renewed strength he found in God's presence. Friend, if there's a reason for you to worship this morning, it should be God's grace. Now, as we transition here, and before we read through the first 12 verses of Genesis 14, I should explain right from the beginning that we're going to take a bit of an unorthodox approach to this passage. What, what we find in these verses described by Moses is an epic battle that takes place during the time of Abram, a battle that ends up directly affecting Lot, which subsequently affects Abram. It's the only reason uh, why this particular battle, battle, the first war recorded in Scripture, is given for us. Ultimately, the battle pits five kings rebelling against four kings, with the four kings then enacting retribution against the five. Additionally, in the process of doing this, in the passage, we're told that there are several groups of people who end up kind of getting caught in the crossfire. Now, because it's really difficult to grasp the text, like just your reading comprehension, to read through it and really kind of process what all's happening, how it's happening, because of the ancient names, the ancient places, uh, I'm not trying to get out of pronouncing them all. But even if I could pronounce them all perfectly and read through this eloquently, you're still going to be like, I have no idea what just happened because of just the foreign names. It's very difficult. So for us to kind of understand what's happening in this passage, I've decided to recast this as an epic rap battle using only the names and crews of the most prominent 90s rap stars. So just bear with me. Here's our text. I think you'll be able to, we're going to have pictures for illustrative purposes. Genesis 14, beginning with verse 1. And it came to pass in the days of Naz, DMX, Snoop Dogg, and Notorious B.I.G. Okay, you got me? That they made war, now here are the other kings, with Tupac, Coolio, Mos Def, Busta Rhymes, and LL Cool J. Four kings, five kings. You with me? All these joined together in the valley of Siddim, that's the salt sea. Twelve years they served Snoop Dogg. And in the thirteenth year they rebelled. Okay, with me? We're all tracking. In the fourteenth year, Snoop Dogg and the kings that were with him. You remember Nas, DMX, the notorious BIG, these four kings. They came and attacked a couple crews. These are the people caught in the crossfire. Some, some rap crews. NWA. The Wu-Tang Clan. Bone thugs and harmony And the Beastie Boys. As far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they, Snoop Dogg, Nas, DMX, and Biggie, turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and attacked all of that country the country of outcast and also the Fugees. Why, why are we attacking the Fugees, right? And Tupac, Coolio, Most Def, Buster Rhymes, and LL Cool J. They went out and joined together in the, in the battle in the Valley of Siddam against Snoop Dogg, Notorious B.I.G., Nas, and DMX, four kings against five. Right, you tracking with me? <laughs> Thank you. Now the valley of Siddim was full of asphalt pits, and Tupac and Coolio, the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, they fled. Some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains. Then they, Snoop Dogg, Nas, Dmx, and Biggie, took all of the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all of their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot. Abram's brother's son, it would be so much easier to say nephew, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. Now, three very quick points. I hope you kind of tracked with that. If you grew up in the 90s and you were a fan of any of these guys, at least there was some illustrative purposes. Secondly, I hope that that wasn't very sacrilegious. The reason that I don't care about any of these names is that they're just literally names. None of them are saved. None of them are significant. None of them really matter. You can study them on your own and kind of like, oh, well, that's where that guy was and that guy. Who cares? You just need to know that there was a battle and that what happened in the process of it, Lot gets captured. This character, Chedlamir, Snoop Dogg, his four-nation coalition, they rout the five kings. They destroy... The majority of this region. They come to the two largest cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. And what do they do? They take the spoils, including Lot. Abram's now going to catch word and have to do something. On a side note, any time there are kings on this earth, there will always be war. As a matter of fact, the only time that we won't have war is when there's one king who rules from Jerusalem the king of peace, Jesus Christ. Well, then one, verse 13, who had escaped, he came and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the with trees of Merimeh, the Amorite, the brother Eshcol, the brother of Anir. They were allies with Abram. They also catch wind. Now, when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Heboah, which is north of Damascus, so he brought back all of the goods, also brought back his brother Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the people. And you know, it's interesting to point out from this text this is the first time we have the word Hebrew Uh, in the Bible. It's the first mention of this word, and we specifically read it as, quote, Abram the Hebrew. The development of this word Hebrew, it's actually very difficult to pin down, like where the word began, how it developed, how it evolved. At best, scholars say that the word Hebrew means to pass over. Uh, The idea is that the word was used to describe kind of a nomad, someone who didn't have a particular city or any type of residence. Abram was a pilgrim, right? And this word Hebrew describes him as a sojourner whose home was in heaven. But you know what I also find interesting about the word Hebrew is that it also defines how it is that Abram had been given such a home in heaven. Because, as we're told in the New Testament, Abram believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Believed God for what? That God was going to provide a savior. The judgment of God would literally pass over him. Abram was righteous because of his faith and his sacrifice. I love this word Hebrew. You also notice that Abram, kind of interesting, that he catches wind that Lot's been captured by by quite a formidable foe. This force of four kings, four nations, who have just routed five other kings and destroyed a whole bunch of other people. Abram catches word, and what happens? We're told that he has 318 trained servants born in his house. Like, aside from the fact that this indicates that Abram at this juncture has incredible wealth, that he has trained servants. The idea of trained servant is that these men were skilled in the act of war. Like, he had many servants, but he had trained up commandos. The man of faith, Abram, right? This nomad. He was still a man prepared to defend himself if push came to shove. According to the text, upon hearing that Lot had been taken hostage, Moses tells us that Abram and these commandos, with the troops from his allies, these Amorite allies, they pursued Chedlamar. As far north as Dan. Now, I don't want to bore you about Dan, um, but it should be mentioned that at this point in history, Dan uh, is not the same, probably the same location we'll later know as Dan, given to the tribe of Dan, but there's no tribe of Dan at this point. Dan, at this juncture, probably simply referred to a spring of water located in northernmost Canaan. It's true this area would become known as Dan, but at this point was known as Dan for an entirely different reason. The word Dan simply means judge and very likely was was known by the word because of what happens in this particular passage. Regardless, upon their arrival, what does Abram do? They divide their force. They wait for nightfall. They launch a surprise attack. And you know, their strategy works. Ched Lamar and his armies are forced to flee. Lot, the spoils of Sodom and Gomorrah, are recovered. Now, what strikes me about this passage is that immediately upon hearing word that his brother Lot was taken captive, what does Abram do? Abram mans up. Like he springs into action. I can imagine that Sarai is kind of sitting back thinking, where was this man in Egypt, right? Like you can, you can I didn't mention it, but, th- but that, that camel ride home, right, could not, could not have gone very well. The man totally weenies out, allows his wife to be taken into the harem of Pharaoh, does nothing. This instance He catches word that Lot has been taken captive. He's like, boys, mount up. Let's do it. This old man, he's willing to risk life and limb to rescue his brother. He was willing to do something about it. You know, the truth is that I believe Abram probably felt a measure of responsibility for what had happened to Lot. I mean, Lot was there, Sodom and Gomorrah, because they had separated, right? For all the wrong reasons. Maybe, maybe Abram's thinking, if we hadn't separated, Lot would have never been in this situation to begin with. I'm sure the grace that Abram has just experienced in the midst of all of his failures, it motivated him to act, right? To save Lot, to save his family. To those who grace has been given, Uh, What should be manifested from our lives, that we should give grace to those around us. May I ask this morning, what is your reaction when you hear about a brother or a sister who's been taken captive? When you hear that someone has fallen into sin, are you willing to do something about it? To man up? To arm up? To go out? To rescue your brother? C.H. McIntosh wrote on this passage, quote, The claims of a brother's trouble are answered by the affections of a brother's heart. This is divine. Genuine faith, while it always renders us independent, never renders us indifferent. Indifference will wrap itself in fleece while a brother shivers in the cold. You know how easy it is for us to come up with all of the ways to justify inaction when we see a brother overtaken by sin. Imagine how our text would have read if Abram reacted like most of us. Lot's been captured. Abram's like, well, Lot made his bed. It's it's important he lie in it for a little while. I mean, you know, sin has its consequences. Lot should have known better. He was playing with fire. You know, God, he's going to use this to teach Lot a very valuable lesson. I I just don't want to rob him of that experience. No. No. That's not Abram's reaction at all, is it? He springs into action. He rallies the crew. He arms to the teeth. He pursues Lot. Christian, just maybe. Word of another's plight has reached your ears. Not on accident, but because God wants you to do something about it. Like just maybe, instead of judging a brother or coming up with all these excuses, these reasons, you can't do anything to help. Like Abram, maybe you need to demonstrate grace. That you need to go out and seek to rescue the brother that you claim to care deeply about. Now I can't help but think, even as I was, I was working through this thought, and my study prep, I couldn't, I couldn't help but, but consider that there's so many of you here this morning for one reason, that there was a brother or a sister who refused to be indifferent, choosing rather to pursue and to liberate you from your captivity, that you're here because a friend never gave up. Yes, Lot, He would return to Sodom even after this, seemingly not learning a thing from the situation. But what concern was that to Abram and the moment of need? Yes. Engaging in such a task will require a sacrifice on your part. And yet, never forget this. When you were held captive by sin, (laughs) praise the Lord, Jesus decided to come and rescue you. Sure, you might get crucified in the process. But if you do, know this, that was a sacrifice Jesus was willing to make to save you. How far are you willing to go to seek to rescue a brother or a sister? So Father, Lord, there's a lot you said.